right, uh, I think it's time for the altar call. <laughs> I think he wants my job. Those skits are powerful, are they not? How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord today? I'm very excited to be in the house of the Lord. I want to let you all know that I'm having special prayer meetings every morning from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. and every night from 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. every morning. But get this. You don't have to leave your home because I'm live streaming it on our website. So all you have to do if you want to join me is go to, your web, go, to, go to your computer and go to our website on the media page and the live screen live stream will come right up and we'll pray together from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. and from 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. until our team comes home safely from Indonesia, which is Saturday. Amen? So we've been doing it since Thursday night. We've had some powerful, powerful times of prayer. There's a handful of people that joined me in each one. And, and also, it's saved. The, the videos are saved. So if you go to the media page of the website, click on the screen, it'll take you to the Ustream account. And all, the archive of all of the recordings are there. These services are recorded there on video. It's live streaming right now, and people are watching all over, around the world. And you can check out those videos later if you want to come back into the service and re-experience it again. So I wanted to let you know that that's available to you in this season. Amen? I want to talk to you this morning about having a God-centered life. Having a God-centered life. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you today for giving us the privilege once more of being in your house. I just speak blessing over your people today, and I pray... Holy Spirit, that you would continue to move among us, but now in the form of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I want to also say that this week, uh, the day before yesterday, as I was praying for the team in Mentawi, you know we were really warring for them, and I sensed danger earlier in the week, and we were really going after their protection and really just covering them in prayer. But all of a sudden, I began on Friday morning to sense rejoicing. And I just, I just, sense, I just saw the people of Mentawi dancing and rejoicing before the Lord. And so I know in my spirit that the word of the Lord has been received on the island of Mentawi and that there's rejoicing there and that our team is just in the glory time right now. They're just enjoying their time there and seeing God move. And uh, so that means that our prayers are powerful and effective and God's doing a mighty, mighty work. This morning we're talking about having a God-centered life, and I, I want to um, draw your attention to the book of Psalms, chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. And as you're turning there, may I suggest to you that things are a lot more simple than you actually are making them? Things are a lot simpler than we make them to be. I don't have anything deep for you this morning. Actually, we don't need anything deep. We have trouble doing the simple stuff. The great 20th century theologian Karl Barth wrote ten volumes of church dogmatics, each of them six or seven hundred pages long, each volume in fine print. 
And you've got to read it with a magnifying glass. Deep, I mean, just one of the deepest theologians to ever walk the planet. He was asked towards the end of his life, what is the greatest theological truth? You'd think he would respond with some deep statement. This is what he said. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the deepest theological truth you'll ever know, is that Jesus loves you. The scripture says that angels long to look into these things, meaning the angels can't figure out why the heck he loves us. It doesn't make any sense to them. It's too deep. The spiritual life is real simple. I learned in Sunday school everything that I ever needed to know for my spiritual life. When I was in Sunday school, there was a song we used to sing, and it goes like this. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. That's the song. But you know what? That's true. We're living in the information age, and, and the basic found, fundamental, fundamental presupposition of the information age is that information solves anything. Any problem can be solved if you have the right information. Information doesn't solve anything. We, because we're an intellectual society, if you want to lose weight, you've got to get a book and read about how to lose weight. But all a book on weight loss is, is a very long and sophisticated way of saying, stop eating so dadgum much. And exercise, for God's sake. Eat less calories, work out every day, and you'll shrink, shrink, shrink. I'm going to write a book. It's going to have two sentences. I'm going to charge $39.99. Weight loss secrets of the great doctor. Benjamin, like I need a PhD, a great doctor. Learn my weight loss secrets. Here's the reality that we're dealing with today. The reality is that believers are messed up. Look at your neighbor and say, you're messed up. Look at your other neighbor and say, you got some issues. The Bible tells us about a woman with an issue of blood. She had an issue. Hers was blood. What's yours? And she had that issue for 12 years. And the scripture says she suffered many things from many physicians, meaning she went all over the place trying to find someone who could fix her issue. And the doctors couldn't fix it. The scientists couldn't fix it. Her friends couldn't fix it, and you know when you got an issue, you got five friends who know the answer. Well, here's what you need to do. I remember my wife and I couldn't have a baby. Everybody knew why. 
One person told me, she needs to gain some weight. She's too skinny. Somebody else told me, you need to lose some weight. You're too fat. <laughs> Somebody said, hold her upside down. I'm not going to even mention the turkey baster idea, but the, the, the point I'm making is, the point I'm making is, for every issue, there's a hundred people who think they know what the issue is and how to fix it. This woman with an issue of blood, she suffered many things from many physicians, and here's why she suffered, because she was willing to try out anything anybody suggested to her. Can you imagine if you tried every suggestion that people gave you to fix your, the problems in your life, how messed up you would be? People giving you herbal remedies and southern remedies. My grandmother was from Arkansas. I remember I had uh, chicken pox. And she put a sheet of wax paper across my bed, laid me on it, stripped me naked, and baptized me in oatmeal. The next morning, I woke up with an onion in my face, sliced in half, an onion right there. She had put onion all on the... I said, that's child abuse. I looked back on that. I said, I should have called CPS. I suffered many things from many physicians. You know what? This woman finally realized that the answer was not in the physicians. She heard that Jesus was walking through the streets, and she said in her heart, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. Notice that she did not say in her heart, if I could just fast and pray for 40 days at his feet. When you and I look at the issues of our life, we always think about something hard we need to do to fix it. Something terribly difficult, if, because that way we, remain, we retain some of the control over the outcome. I can say I did something hard. It's not hard. She said, I don't need to jump through hoops. Those physicians were probably doing all kind of crazy stuff to her, burning candles on her back and, you know, I mean, you know, got to let some of the blood out of your arm. I mean, who knows what they were doing to her. She was probably going through all kind of stuff. But when she saw Jesus, the first thing that occurred to her is, it's easy, all i got to do is touch him. It's not as hard as I thought it was. I thought it was going to be strenuous. The only strenuous part was breaking through the crowd that was between her and Jesus. Do you know, if being with Jesus is not strenuous. The only thing that's strenuous is getting that crowd of junk out from in between you and him. You're going to have to do some pressing to get there, but it's not pressing into Jesus. It's pressing through all of that crowd of junk that's designed to separate you from him, that's designed to stand in your way, that's designed to crowd you out and keep you at the back. Zacchaeus had to climb up in the sycamore tree. But the moment you come into proximity with Jesus, everything becomes simple. Everything becomes easy. Jesus comes to that tree and says, Zacchaeus, come on down. Let's go to your house. Easy. 
The woman with the issue of blood, she touches him. Virtue goes through her body and she's healed. Jesus turned around and said, who touched me? Everybody said, Lord, the crowd is thronging you. Everybody's touching you. He said, no, no, no. Somebody touched me in faith. A lot of people come to church and touch Jesus, but only a few touch him in faith. A lot of people were touching him that day. Only one got healed. Somebody touched me in faith. And the woman came trembling. She thought she was in trouble. <laughs> she thought she had done something wrong, and rightfully so. She had broken the law of Moses. She had an issue of blood. Anyone she touched was unclean. Now everybody's going to know that she made Jesus, the Master, the Messiah, unclean. And Jesus said, no, 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 you got it twisted. You didn't make me unclean. I made you clean. A lot of people say, I can't go to church. I'm too messed up. You're afraid you're going to make Jesus unclean. I don't care how messed up you are. This is the place to be. This is the place to get clean. Jesus said to her, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. What did he mean by your faith? The fact that you believe that it was simple. Faith simplifies things. It's simple. You got an issue? You can go to every reverend, doctor, missionary, bishop, evangelist, brother, deacon, elder that you can think of. You can go to the greatest apostles in the land. I had a guy say to me, I'm demon-possessed. I said, really? He said, yes, and I went to the greatest prophets in the world and asked them to deliver me, and they couldn't break the power of the demon over my life. Did you try Jesus? <laughs> There's only one remedy. You've got to get God up in the mix of your issue. You've got to locate your issue and put God right there. Say, how do I put God anywhere? Well, let's go to Scripture and see how to do it. Psalm chapter 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord. Say it. I have set the Lord. Doesn't that sound like an arrogant statement? I have set the Lord always before me. David says, I put him there. I said, Lord, this is your place right here. I set him there. And I set him there always. I put him there and said, Lord, you're not moving from that place. You're staying right there. I have set the Lord. I'm declaring to you today by the word of the Lord that God will stay wherever you set him. If you set him at the periphery and outskirts of your life, he'll stay there. And you can go to church and repent as much as you want. You're not breaking free from nothing as long as God is on the outskirts of your life. You set God outside your city and you wonder why your city is going to hell. David said, I'm not waiting for nobody to lay hands on me. I have set the Lord always before me. Listen, nobody can set the Lord there for you. Come on, just lay hands on me. <laughs> you can get so many hands laid on you, you go home with finger waves. <laughs> and you're still not breaking free from nothing unless you learn how to set the Lord right in the mix of your issue. I have set the Lord 
always before me. And I've set him always before me. Not behind me. Not in the other room. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Look at it in the NIV. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. The right hand is the place of favor. David says, I put him in my favorite place. Most folks don't put God in their favorite place. My favorite place is on the couch in front of the television. My favorite place is at the Raider game with a box of popcorn and a beer. Make sure nobody's around. I don't put him in my favorite place. I, I put him in the spiritual place. The church. And when I say the church, I mean the four walls of that building where the church meets. One of the greatest travesties in church history is that we started calling buildings churches. It's not in the Bible. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Have you been shaken lately? Then you need to get the Lord before you. Say, no matter how many times I get up, I fall again. Well, then you need to put the Lord before you. You can't be shaken if he's at your right hand. Let's keep going. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One decay. David says, I don't care what I go through, even death, you're not going to leave me in it. As long as I keep you at my right hand, I know that no matter what comes or goes in my life, you're not leaving me there. There's no way you can leave me there when I've set you at my right hand, when I've put you in the place of favor of my life, when I've set you in my favorite place. I say, this is my favorite place right here, the place where God dwells. So my heart rejoices. My tongue also will be glad. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon my soul to the grave. This is amazing that David is saying this in the Old Testament when he didn't even have the theology of the raising of the dead yet. That hadn't even been revealed yet. But David was so secure in the presence of the Lord before him that he knew that even death could not stop God from coming through on his behalf. You want to know how to break free from your issue? Put God there. There's no other remedy. Put God there. Deliverance won't help. You can get that same demon cast out of you 450,000 times. <laughs> if you invite it back in on your way home, it'll come back. <laughs> With seven friends. <laughs> We're going to have a party. If you don't put God there, inner healing won't help. Counseling won't help. Therapy won't help. Don't get me wrong, it doesn't mean that those things aren't helpful. They are helpful. But only in the realm of understanding. You can understand it and understand it, but at some point you've got to put God there. Just keep going. Verse 11, you have made known to me the path of life. David said, I've learned the path of life. I've learned that there's one path that leads to death, 
And there's another path that leads to life. David said, I've learned. You've made known to me. The one thing you've made known to me is the path of life. Listen, when you come into the house of God, I don't care how good the sermon is. I don't care how much you get out of it. I don't care how much Hebrew and Greek, you know, (laughs) how many theological truths, how many pithy wise sayings, how much profundity. If you don't get the path of life out of it, if you don't walk away from it saying, now I know how to live. Now I know exactly what to do in order to walk towards life. If you don't walk out saying, he made known to me the path of life, it's all for nothing. Because the road to hell is paved with not only good intentions, but good theology. All kinds of good teaching people believe who are going to hell. Because they don't know how to walk in it. David said, you've made known to me the path of life. What's the path of life? The path of life starts with putting God always before you, setting Him at your right hand so that you won't be shaken. If you walk with God always before you, you'll walk the path of life. Having a God-centered life, that's the path. Your life must be centered in God. And then he says, you will fill me with joy in your presence. You see his expectation? As I walk the path of life... You're going to fill me with joy in your presence. That's my expectation. Every day I wake up saying, oh, he's about to fill me with joy in his presence. With everlasting pleasures or with eternal pleasures at your right hand. I like the NKJV. It says, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here's the problem. Here's why so many believers have so much trouble walking the path of life. Because we see the path to life as a very tiring path. When I think of the church, I think of it as the place to be spiritual. When I think of my home, I think of it as the place to relax. My home is the place of relaxation and enjoyment. And since I do not define spiritual things in the category of enjoyment... I don't practice any of them in my home. If you do not pray at home, if you don't spend any time in prayer at home, if you don't crack your Bible at home, it says something about what you believe about God. These things are tiring, and they're boring, and they're religious. Religious. Let's talk about religion for a moment. We're very anti-religious, aren't we? In actuality, I hate religion. I'm not surrendering nothing to religion. I'm not giving up nothing. If all I had was religion, I wouldn't give up anything. I'm not tithing for religion. I'm not turning away from sin for a religious alternative. I'll give everything to Jesus, but nothing to religion. If it's Jesus I'm serving, I'll give him everything. If he's offering me his fire and his power and his love, that's worth sacrificing everything for. But religion, I ain't giving up nothing for that. But on the other side, we become so anti-religion that we have forsaken faithfulness. Because the moment we start to be faithful in doing anything, we think, oh, see, now I'm being religious. Try praying every night at the same time. No, 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 that's religion. That's religion. That's religious. No, no, no. That's bondage. Anything religious is bondage. It's bondage. I'm not going to be in bondage to that. That's legalism. 
That's holier than thou. Then I'm, now I'll be one of those Christians that carries around a big old King James Version Bible. Quote scriptures. Wear a suit every day. Have one of those big Bibles on my coffee table, the big white one. I was flipping channels the other night. I saw some, a preacher reading from one of those big white Bibles. <laughs> and the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jonah saying, <laughs> you know, I thought, man, that just looks religious. And I don't want to be religious, so I'll make sure I'm not faithful at anything. Because it's religious. But yet, I'll watch Monday night football every Monday night without fail. I will do it religiously. I mean, I will move things out. I will see conflicts coming in my calendar and reschedule them. I will shun family, friends, and even the work of the Lord in order to be faithful to my Monday night football religion. But if it comes to the things of God, if I do it consistently, now I'm religious. Here's how you can tell the difference between religion and reality. If it's religious, it doesn't work. If it works, it wasn't religious. Are you with me? There's a young man sitting in this room right now, and he was telling me, he said, you know, when I was about 17, 18 years old, I had a problem with young ladies. He said, I, I had just given my life to Christ. I was walking with Christ. But all of a sudden, when a beautiful young lady my age would walk in the room, my whole demeanor would change, and I would turn into Rico Suave. <laughs> he said, I couldn't stop it. He said, I was working in this ice cream shop, and, and you know, I'm just serving ice cream. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? And then a young, beautiful girl would walk in. I'd be like, what's up, girl? What your name is? <laughs> he said, and even while I was doing it, in my head I'm going, what am I doing? This is my sister in Christ. This is a daughter of God. I can't talk to her like this. And he said she would walk out and I'd go in the back room and tell my boss, excuse me, I'll be right back. He said, I'd go in the back room and go, God, help me. And I'd pray. He said, and then another young lady would walk in and I'd do the same thing. He said, I prayed. I said, God, you've got to help me break free from this issue. He said, all of a sudden this idea came to me. I felt it was from the Lord. Stop eating meat. Fast meat. Now, if I got that idea, I'd rebuke the devil. I'd say the devil is a liar. <laughs> so, no, 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 that's not biblical. Jesus, Jesus <laughs> he proclaimed all foods clean. <laughs> that's my favorite scripture, by the way. And in this, Jesus proclaimed all foods clean. I quote that scripture and give thanks every time I eat a ham sandwich. Uh, I got a witness over here. I call it a double witness. <laughs> but watch this. He didn't eat meat for seven years. Sounds religious, doesn't it? But here's the key. When he stopped eating meat, the issue stopped immediately. You know when he ate meat again? On his honeymoon, after he got married. He was eating hamburgers and hot dogs and chicken. Ribs. I think he even had a bowl of chitlins. Bacon! <laughs> What would you like for breakfast, sir? Bacon! <laughs> A whole plate of it! <laughs> Nothing but bacon! 
let's talk about fasting for a moment. You know, most believers never fast. You know how in the Proverbs it says, the sluggard says there's a lion in the streets. Can't go to work today. Why? I heard a growl outside. Said, Fool, that was a motorcycle. No, 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 that was a lion. I think there's a lion waiting outside my door. If I come outside my door, that lion's going to devour me. I'll be murdered in the streets. I can't go to work. Call in and sick. Call your boss. <coughs> can't make it today, boss. <laughs> I'm sick. <laughs> there's a lion in the streets. I'll be killed. Most believers are like that when it comes to fasting. No, no, I can't, I can't fast. Why not? I, I work. I work. I, I, might, I might fall over and die on my job. I might, you know, I've got to have my strength on my job because, you know, I work a lot. And if I go to the, I might fall over off in front of my computer and die on the floor. You know, I just might, you know, I'm responsible. I might get fired if I fast. I could die. You can skip a meal. You're not going to die. See, I used to grab my stomach and rebuke the devil. Then I realized that this kind only cometh out by prayer and fasting. Here's what I'm talking about. Setting the Lord before you means de determining where your issue is and putting God right there. Now watch this. There, there is a, there's a temporal dimension to every issue. If your issue is addiction to pornography, the temptation probably hits you at the same time every night. So if that time is 11 p.m., you're having an 11 p.m. prayer meeting starting tonight. You say, but it shifted to 2 a.m., and you're going to add a 2 a.m. prayer meeting too. Maybe at midnight every night you get so depressed that you want to take your own life. You're about to start a midnight prayer meeting. Say, oh no, I'm too tired. You're just laying awake there in bed feeling bad about yourself anyway. You're not too tired to lay there and feel terrible. The same person will tell me, I'm up till 3 o'clock in the morning every night. Well, then why don't you pray? Oh, no, no, I need to sleep. I found that I can cast out demons, but not ignorance. I've tried. Doesn't come out. <laughs> Putting the Lord always before you means make a, making a decision to put Him right in the. See what 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 we typically do is we fight the issue at that time instead of just touching the hem of His garment. You think. I need to fight it for 16 years. That's what I need to do. I just need to wrestle against it and fight it. For, I'm not fighting that. I'm just going to love Jesus. I'm just going to love Jesus. I'm just going to love Jesus. There is no substitute to personal spirituality. There's no substitute. You, if you're going to have to spend time with Jesus, if you're going to break free from anything, there's only one way. There's only one method, and it's Jesus. But you've got to spend time with Him. Turn on the worship music in your room. Turn your home into a sanctuary and seek the face of God. Get God up in your house. David says, I put Him there. I set Him there. I've set Him there always before me. I have taken steps 
to establish God at the central place of my life. See, this is the problem. Most believers don't have a God-centered life. They have a life-centered life or an entertainment-centered life or a work-centered life or a family-centered life or a money-centered life or a things or a stuff-centered life or an activity-centered life, a vacation-centered life. I love these believers who go on vacations every two weeks. People accuse me of going on a lot of vacations, and my wife. Yeah, we're, mis- we're, we're, we're risking our lives in the jungles of Africa to reach the lost, and that's a vacation. <laughs> the spirit of slap comes on me real, real heavy whenever somebody says that. I just feel anointing in my hands. <laughs> I'm going to lay hands. <laughs> um. David, he's got some authority here. You see in, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, but the Bible tells him, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to tell you what's up in it. In uh, 2, Samuel, <laughs> 2 Samuel chapter 6, now here's, here's the issue with David. David, um, now, okay, here's the history. Moses, he builds the tabernacle. God gave him the pattern for building the tabernacle. And God said, build it exactly according to the pattern that I gave you on the mountain. And so he did. And God commanded him to build the tabernacle with three rooms, an outer court, an inner court, and the Holy of Holies. And inside of the Holy of Holies, God commanded Moses to build this wooden box, overlay it in gold, make a solid gold lid for it called the mercy seat. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. Inside it were the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, some manna from the wilderness, and the the rod of Aaron that budded. And, and, and God told Moses to set it in the Holy of Holies. It represented the very presence of God. And God said, I'm going to dwell there in that Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to dwell there in the Holy of Holies. And one man, once a year, is going to go through the curtain. You see, what divided the inner court from the Holy of Holies was a veil that was six inches th- thick and 16 feet high. So there's no, and it's, <laughs> and there's no, there's no uh, divide in it. They had to lift it and go underneath. And, and. God's presence was so mightily there and so terrible that the high priest, one man once a year went in, he was the high priest, he wore bells on his legs and, those be- and a rope around his leg that went back out under the veil. Because if those bells stopped ringing, it meant God was displeased with him and they would drag his dead body out. Oh, you didn't know what God we're talking about. God will kill you. You're talking about a God of love, and he is. He's loving, but he's also jealous. He's the God who kills. Dios de la cuete. Dios de la filero. El cholo Dios. No, the point... Here's the point I make. The point I'm making... The Holy of Holies was restricted. The presence of God was restricted to one man once a year. That tabernacle was in a city called Shiloh. When Joshua took the promised land, they set it down in a city called Shiloh. And Shiloh was the place where everybody worshipped during the days of Samuel. Samuel lived in Shiloh with Eli, the high priest, right? And he ministered before the Lord at Shiloh there before the Ark of the Covenant. He spent so much time in the Holy of Holies and with the presence of God right there in the inner court. 
and he ministered before the Lord from a young boy, and then he began to prophesy to Israel, and then Saul became king, and then Saul was removed, and David became king. And when David became king, he began to extend the realm of the empire. And what he saw was this city on a hill called Mount Zion, and the city was called Jerusalem. And he said, I'm going to take that city. And he did. He went in and he conquered that city, and he set up his headquarters there in Jerusalem built a palace for himself, built houses for all of his nobles and all of the, the leaders of Jerusalem. It became like the Washington, D.C. of Israel. It was the capital city. And David's his reign was secure, and his power was secure, and his authority was secure, and the people's loyalty was to David, and he had power, and he had influence among the surrounding nations, and people were sending tribute to David, hoping that he wouldn't go in and conquer them. Everybody wanted to be friends with David, and, and David looked around and he says, I've got all the power and authority I need, I've got all the money and wealth, I've got my palace, everything's in its proper place, but one thing I don't have is the presence of God. It's still way over there in Shiloh. And David said, this ain't right. He says, I'm going to go to Shiloh, and I'm going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem is the center of the community. This is where all the life happens. And we're not going to keep the presence of God on the outskirts of the community in Shiloh. We're going to bring the presence of God to the center of the community in Jerusalem. Too many of us here today still have the presence of God over in Shiloh, but you're living in Jerusalem. The Shiloh of your life is the Sunday morning worship service. The Shiloh of your life is the Thursday night midweek service. That's Shiloh. That's not Jerusalem. The presence of God doesn't come to Jerusalem till you take it home with you. Until your home becomes a place where God makes His presence known. You're still living in, in Jerusalem, but the presence of God's in Shiloh. Until the Spirit of God moves in your bedroom, it's still in Shiloh, it's not in Jerusalem. Your Jerusalem is where you live. It's your life. And so David says, I'm going to Shiloh to get the glory and bring it back to Jerusalem. When you come here, you're coming to Shiloh to get the glory and take it back home to Jerusalem with you. And you know the story, there was the whole thing with Obed-Edom because it didn't go right the first time and there was 20 years. But when David finally brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, he had a procession, he had the priests carrying it on their shoulders and they made a sacrifice every seven steps. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Sacrifice. Seven. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. I mean, he was doing this thing right. And by the time they started coming up the hill towards Jerusalem, the people on the gates were crying out. Lift up your, they were crying out to the people on the gates. Lift up your head, O you gates, and be ye lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory will come in. Who is this King of glory? They cried out from the gates. The gates, And the priest cried back, The Lord, the Lord Almighty, He is the King of glory. And the gates opened up, and the Ark of the Covenant processed in, and the people shouted and cheered and danced. And David began to get his Holy Ghost dance on and he danced so much that his kilt flew up and all of his glory was being revealed. And he got home to his wife, Michael, and she said, I see how the king has disgraced himself and become undignified dancing and, th and throwing his kilt up in front of all of the maidens of Israel. And David looked at her and said, excuse me, the maidens of Israel are going to honor me. But before the Lord, I'll be undignified. Matter of fact, I'll be more undignified than this. You ain't seen nothing yet. 
But before the people, they're going to honor me. And the Lord shut Michael's womb, and she never had another child because she had dishonored David. When David brings the Ark of the Covenant up to the top of the hill, what does he do? He builds a tent, a tabernacle. He builds it there on top of the hill in Jerusalem, but he does it a little different from Moses. He says, you know what? I don't feel like we need the three rooms. Let's just have a one-room tabernacle, just one open room. We'll put the ark in the middle. They said, cool. So they built a tabernacle. He appointed priests to serve it. He appointed worship leaders. It was the first 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week house of prayer. He had worship and prayer going there 24-7. And so many priests signed up for it that they had to retire them at age 50 because there were so many waiting behind them to get in there. Man, if we started a 24-7 house of prayer, be one person in there at a time. If that, better try to find 24 people. People begin to say, you read Psalm 25, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Or 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He whose hands are clean and whose heart is pure who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. You know why? Because the ark is right there. God's presence is right there. That's the thing. If you're going to live in God's presence, you've got to be willing to let him clean you up. Most people don't want to live in God's presence because they're not ready to get cleaned up yet. I still like this. Some folks are like, you going up? I ain't going up. <laughs> You going up to the tabernacle? No, nah, dog, you go right ahead. Let me know how that goes. Because I got some stuff, and the priest, they pulled them out from under there. <laughs> me dragging me back down the hill. <laughs> Listen to what the Lord says. People are sending me Facebook messages while I'm in church. They're popping up on my screen. I can't stop them. Amos 9-11. Now, watch this. Um, prophecy of Amos happens after the tabernacle of David's already gone. The temple of Solomon was built and destroyed. The people of Israel went into Babylon, Babylonian captivity for 70 years. They came out of the Babylonian captivity and they built the second temple and it was destroyed. And the prophet Amos writes, and he says, In that day... On the day he restores Israel, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. God says, I'm not rebuilding the temple of Solomon. I'm rebuilding the tabernacle of David. You know what God is doing in these last days? He's rebuilding the tabernacle of David. He's looking for the tabernacle of David to arise. And the tabernacle of David represents taking the presence of God into the centermost place of your life and establishing it there and saying, I've set the Lord always before me. David said that after he had set the tabernacle of David in its place and brought in the Ark of the Covenant, he says, now I've set the Lord. I mean, he had gone through a 20-year process to get the presence of God there. He says, now I've set the Lord always before me. I've made the necessary adjustments. I've made, taken the necessary steps. And I've made the necessary decisions to set the Lord always before me. And now he's at my right hand, and I ain't going nowhere. I'm not going to be moved. You've got to make some decisions. 
You've got to make some decisions to bring the presence of God into your home. You've got to make a decision to turn off the television and turn on some worship music. You've got to make a decision to crack that Bible. And even if it's the, the, the Pharisee Bible on your coffee table, you know, the big white one with the letters this big, I don't care. Read that one if that's the only one closest to you. It's not religious anymore because you're making a decision to set the Lord always before you. Amen. The Lord spoke to me on Thursday morning. He said, son, take the night. I said, what? Because you know the Lord be dropping some stuff that don't make no sense. <laughs> he said, son, take the night. He said, if you want to procure victory for your people in this season, you've got to take the night. You've got to take the night. You know, every time I pray over this house at night, I sense all kinds of oppression coming against people, and I'm constantly battling oppression on behalf of this person and that person. I feel all kinds of oppression coming over the house. The Lord said, son, take the night. You want to break that oppression, you take the night. There's only one way we're going to have freedom if we find it at night. There's all kinds of devils that come out at night to, to torment you and to oppress you. You've got to take authority over the night. You've got to transform the night from a season of oppression to a season of blessing. From a season of oppression to a season of revelation. God is going to so transform your night that you're not even going to be afraid to go to sleep about those bad dreams anymore because your dreams are going to be the place where God meets with you and speaks to you and gives you revelation. Instead of saying, I had a dream about some devil last night, you're going to wake up and say, Jesus came to me in my dream last night. Take the night. There's only one way to take it. It's to give it to the Lord. Give it to the Lord to give it to the Lord, but you've got to stop believing that prayer and time in the Word is physically taxing or emotionally taxing. David said, you're going to fill me with joy in your presence. You're going to fill me with joy in your presence. You want to know how to sleep better than you've ever slept before with more peace? Spend a minimum of one hour in prayer before going to bed. Come into the Holy of Holies. Let the Spirit of God take you into the presence of God. Let Him manifest the presence of Jesus. You will sleep better than you've ever slept before. Try it. You want to sleep worse than you've ever slept before? Watch three or four hours of TV first. <laughs> Somebody came and said, Pastor, pray for me. I said, why? I'm, I've been tormented by fear and panic and anxiety and fear and torment and panic. And I'm just, just oh, really? Yeah. What, what, what do you do at night before you go to bed? I watch horror movies. Maybe if you weren't watching movies about Satan, <laughs> he might not have access to your dreams. I've never had anybody say to me, I spent two hours in prayer and then went to bed and was attacked by the devil all night long. Never had anybody say that. You want to know how to walk in peace and love and joy all day long? As soon as you wake up, spend a one-hour minimum in the presence of God. Open your Bible. Pray. Simple, really. Setting God always before you is as simple as read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. You don't need any information, really. You don't need a book about it. You don't need any training. The disciples asked Jesus for a prayer seminar. Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. He said, okay, here you go. Our Father, 
which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There you go. There's your seminar. <laughs> they thought he was going to give them a six-month course with a syllabus, required reading, and a test at the end of it, and a term paper. Instead, he gave them a simple prayer. You know what he's saying? It's simple. It's simple. You just got to do it. All it takes is just a little touch, but you got to touch Jesus. You got to touch Jesus, not some pastor, not some apostle, not some evangelist, not some prophet, not some therapist. Not that any of those things are wrong. I am a pastor. But I can't heal you. Jesus can. Jesus can. Don't get me wrong, some of y'all need your pastor. Some of y'all need some therapy. Some of y'all need a doctor. And that's fine. Do that too. But you've got to understand that what heals you is Jesus. And if you don't take steps to place Him at the center of your life, you're not going to get anywhere. But if you make a decision to put Him at the center of your life, you're going somewhere. You're going somewhere. By the way, I have lost 31 pounds, for those of you who are wondering... I have one pair of pants that fits, and I bought them the day before yesterday, and I'm wearing them now. I put on one of my smallest suits this morning, and it was baggy on me. Look, the pants look like hammer pants. But I'm also on day 32 of a fast. Ooh, you just lost your reward. No, I didn't. You know how I know? Because it's working. It's still working. In more than one way. So, well, why are you rejoicing in the weight you lost? Because God likes that too. Now you can serve me longer. Not die. <laughs> God's interested in that too. I want to say something. I want to say one more thing to you about fasting. Whenever I fast for a long period of time, an extended period of time, I walk through a dark valley for the first couple weeks, a couple, three weeks. And this was no different. I walked through a very dark valley. I was plagued by terror and fear and anxiety. And I would fight it tooth and nail. I'd lay on my face before the Lord and pray for four hours and still be terrified and not know why I was terrified. I was talking to my spiritual father every day, and he was breaking fear off my life, and then it would creep right back on me. I walked through a dark valley of confusion. I walked through a dark valley of defeat where I was fighting this thought that I'm a failure in every way and that everything's falling apart and that nothing's working. I walked through a dark valley. But all of a sudden, I came into a clearing. And when I come into this clearing, and it happens every time, and this time even more so than at any other time in my life, I came into this clearing where all of a sudden, God began to reveal himself. God began to show me great and mighty things that I did not know. 
And suddenly in that place, I had clarity like I've never had before in my life. And at this moment right now, I have clarity like I've never had before in my life. Confusion is broken off of me. Fear is broken off of me. Anxiety is broken off. All of these things I just see clearly. If you struggle with confusion, you struggle with, with fear, you struggle with anxiety or any of that stuff, go on a fast. And fast until God breaks all that junk off you. Just drink juice or water. Or do a Daniel fast or eat one meal a day. The point I'm making is that God gives a sacrifice as the means by which we join ourselves to God as He joins Himself to us. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Do you know what happens is that when you begin to seek the Lord intentionally like that, you begin to carry the sorrows of others. I knew that all of that stuff that was coming against me, it wasn't on me before I was fasting. But suddenly when I was fasting, all of this stuff is coming at me. You know why? Because that's what all of you were going through. But you know what? When I broke through it, I knew I'd broken through it, not for myself, but for all of you. And that's why I know that all of you are going to have victory. You're going to have complete victory. You're going to walk in freedom, and you're going to walk in victory. But you know what? Now it's your turn. It's your turn to seek God like that on behalf of someone else. Family members that don't know Jesus. Friends that you've been crying out for that don't know Jesus. You begin to seek God on their behalf. And yes, some of their stuff's going to come at you, but you're going to be victorious over it. You're going to stand under it. That stuff was coming at me, but I did not buckle and fall under it. And I did not, I was walking around every day going, God, I will not succumb to fear and unbelief, not for a moment. I will not give into it. I was fighting it, not willing to give into it. But it was coming at me hard. But you know what? You stick through it, you're going to break through. And you're going to break through not only for yourself, but you're going to see people all around you getting set free. That's where God's taken us in this next season. I can't wait for our team to come home from Indonesia and share the testimonies of what God has done. I know that there's mighty works that have been done and are being done. I can't wait to hear it. God's doing an awesome thing. But when clarity comes, what it does is it simplifies everything. It's really simple. It's not hard. Just put Jesus at the center of your life. Let's pray.